For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Narrowsburg, New York community member Linda Slocum shares her archived conversation with the talented eel king, Floyd Campfield. It's a beautiful river. If you like fishing and you want to spend a nice time during the week when it's quiet in the morning, there's probably nothing more beautiful than being on the river at daylight and watching the deer along the shore drinking with our fawns and watching the bear and the eagles fishing. I've sat down there for hours visualizing the Indians, how beautiful this was and to how it is today. First, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. President Biden is set to leave the White House next hour for Florida to survey Hurricane Idalia damage. He approved a disaster declaration freeing up federal funds for several hard-hit counties to help with temporary housing and home repairs. Governor Ron DeSantis says he plans to ask the White House to expand the declaration. But DeSantis, a presidential candidate, is breaking with custom and says he won't meet with Biden on the ground because he says it would hurt recovery efforts. Grace Kramer, who lives in St. Petersburg, says she She has yet to see federal assistance. I'm waiting for FEMA to get out here to give me, uh, you know, let me know what I can claim or what I can do. Give me some leadership. And I have a I still have water in my house. Biden is asking Congress for an additional four billion dollars to contend with back to back natural disasters. The Biden administration has released new recommendations for staffing levels in nursing homes. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports the plan got a mixed reception from advocates. There were plenty of horror stories during the height of the COVID pandemic about the virus spreading unchecked and seniors left for hours without care. The Biden administration promised minimum staffing guidelines for nursing homes months ago. Now that they've arrived, many advocates say they're too lax. The proposal would require facilities to have enough nurses to see each resident for about 33 minutes per day, and it requires at least one aide for every 10 residents. Some advocates say that's not nearly enough. Others say staffing requirements without an adequate workforce is futile. One part of the proposal lauded by AARP requires a nurse to be on duty at each facility 24 hours a day. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. It was a good week for the stock market with investors betting that the Fed will hold interest rates steady later this month. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow rose nearly one and a half percent. All the major stock indexes were up for the week. The Labor Department says U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month, while the unemployment rate inched up to 3.8 percent. Job growth has cooled compared to earlier this year, which is something the Federal Reserve has been looking for as it raises interest rates in an effort to curb inflation. The government also reported a big jump in consumer spending in July, with spending on both goods and services up. Household spending grew four times as fast as household income during the month, which forecasters say is likely not sustainable. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Nobel Foundation today withdrew its invitation for representatives of Russia, Belarus, and Iran to attend this year's Nobel Prize award ceremonies. Swedish lawmakers had threatened to boycott the events in Stockholm, citing Russia's war in Ukraine and Iran's crackdown on human rights. The winners of the prestigious awards will be announced in October. Ceremonies are set for December. This is NPR News. 
Just when you thought it was safe to say goodbye to summer, it's back. Radio Catskills Music Yard Sale is back and so full of great things. Looking for record CDs, cassettes? We've got them. Turntables, stereos, speakers? We've got them. VCRs, video games, and whatever this is? We've got it, but we want you to have it. The Music Yard Sale at Radio Catskill. 9 to 3 today. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. In 2012, as part of an oral history project in the Delaware River Valley titled Unearthed, sponsored by the Western Sullivan Public Library, community member Linda Slocum interviewed local resident Floyd Campfield. Floyd Campfield lived from 1936 to 2019. Radio Catskill was granted permission to air this audio segment on Farm and Country. Floyd Campfield speaks with knowledge and passion about constructing his eel weirs. Floyd and wife Colby harvested, processed, and sold eels for many years. And as more things changed along the Delaware River, well, let Floyd tell you about that. Here is Linda Slocum speaking with Floyd Campfield in 2012 from his home in Tustin, just outside of Narrowsburg, New York. Perhaps we could start this interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in this locality. I lived possibly half a mile down the road. That's where I was born. And I've lived right here in this whole community. We built a house when we got married just down the road from us here, a quarter of a mile. And we sold that in 1970, bought my grandfather's home. And in 1970, we stayed there till we built this new house in 2002. And also, in 1965, I had joined the state police and spent 20 years with the state police and retired in 1985. And prior to that, I had spent from 1959 to 1965 working for the Narrowsburg Lumber Company. And prior to that, I spent three years in the military. And that takes me pretty much right up to now. I was eeling ever from 1960 till 2010, and I no longer do it. The one that I had, it took me probably 25 years to build the walls. And it's a lot of work, a lot of time spent doing it, and uh, you have the rights to it until such time as you give them up to somebody else. There's nobody can come in and take them away from you. So that down there will always be mine. But they'll never use it again because nobody will want to do that kind of work. It's not easy. It's time-consuming. But I love the Delaware River. I was born and raised on it. Fished on it all my life. For someone who never saw an eel weir and doesn't know about eeling or trapping eels, would you be able to describe a little bit about a season for setting up your... Building an eel weir... 
you have to find a proper place in the river. You just can't build them any place where the river is. You have to find where there is a pretty good drop where the water runs fairly fast and you have to build the weir out of wooden slats. But that's the easy part. The hard part is building the stone walls. And if you don't have stones right there in the river, you have to boat them where there was stones enough to build about a quarter of the yield rear. And above me, I boated stones for years and years and years. The one wall I have was 330 feet long. The other wall was about 250, but the majority of them stones was brought there with a rowboat. I load the boat up, then bring it down, put it in the wall, I go back up and get another load and bring it down. And I had a beautiful, beautiful eel weir. I took probably better than three quarters of the river and I had the main stream of the river. And I had it really nice. I caught more eels in my eel weir than anybody on the Delaware. And everybody below me used to complain. They says, oh, I catch them all. If you don't construct it the proper way, you will not catch eels. And it's, it's all in the knowledge of how to construct the eel weir. And the first year I had it in, 1963, I didn't catch 500 pounds of eels. And there was an old man down the river, his name was Red Connect, and that man know how to catch eels. So I went down and looked at his eel weir, and I saw what he was doing, what the trick was to catch eels. And boy, the next year I caught a lot of eels. I had him come up and look at it. Oh, he says, you're doing good, kid. You're going to catch lots of eels. Yeah, I didn't catch nothing the first year. But I went down and saw what his secret was, and... I never told anybody because I didn't want anybody above me to know what I was doing. Nobody above me has ever caught the amount of eels. 2004, maybe, 2003, somewhere around in there, one night my son and I sat on the eel weir and we caught 6,000 pounds in one night of oh eels. Never in my life have I caught anything like that. And they said there's a shortage of eels, there's no eels in the river. This goes to show you that the eels are there. And it was just everything fell together just the right way. You have to have all the conditions just right. You have to have dark of the moon, you have to have cool water, and the water has to be a little bit murky. And you don't want to flood in the river. If you do, you're going to get flooded. And this night, we were down, and the river was in the 26th, 27th, or 28th of October. We hadn't caught many eels, and it was misting. And there was a thunderstorm going to come through that night. And I took my son, we went down, and I said, the eels are going to run tonight. And just as soon as it started getting dark, they started coming in. By the time it was dark... They was coming in so fast that I had feeder pipes on both sides to the boxes that they was coming in so fast we had to net them out and put them in another box because they couldn't all get in the boxes. They sometimes would eight or ten come in together. You couldn't go 20 seconds without an eel coming in. And this just kept up, kept up. We stayed till one o'clock in the morning. We had probably 4,000 pounds by then. We just left the next morning, went down the river, was really muddy. And she'd come up another foot and a half. Every box I had was full of eels. 
just unbelievable. Truthfully, I don't think you'll ever see that again. It don't seem like there's the amount in the river as there was back 10 years ago. I don't know. I've seen years, I've seen yields all over the bottom of the river, and you get a flood and you didn't catch any. Just when eel season comes, which is the last week of August until the beginning of November, that's eel season. And the conditions all have to be right to come together and that one night in order to catch the eels. You won't catch an eel on a moonlit night. You can get down there with a full moon and sit there all night and you won't see two eels. You get down there on a night when there's no moon and it's a little misting out and the water has turned, the temperature has gone down to maybe 45 degrees and you wouldn't believe the amount of eels. It just, all the conditions have to be just perfect. And did you have a market ready for all those eels? I cleaned every eel that I owned. I never sold an eel live. That was in 1963. And my wife and I would stand for hours. I would clean eels, take the insides out, and my wife would wash them. Because they had to be nice and clean in the inside. And then I'd put them in a brine. That was eels for smoking. You had to put them in a brine for 14 to 16 hours. Then you had people that wanted fresh eels, which were skinned. This is a different process altogether. An eel that you smoked... You did not take the head off, and you did not take the skin off. You just took the entrails out of them. Where a dressed eel was altogether different. The head had to come off, the skin had to come off, and the entrails had to come off. So on the skinned eels, what I would do, I would cut their head through the backbone, and with my thumb, I could tear it around, and I'd hold the top where the skin had come off, and I could pull the hide off. And I put them in a nice big stainless steel wash tubs with two sections in it. One to, to clean the eels in and the other one to put the eels after they're cleaned in. And my wife would take the insides out of them and wash them up and weigh them and put them in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And we would have to do this usually when I had time and when I worked at the lumber company I was only there a couple of years before I went to the state police, but I did it for the whole 20 years as the state police on my days off. Mm-hmm. I cleaned eels, her and I cleaned eels, and we was catching on the average 6,000 eels a year, 6,000 pounds, some years more, some years less. But we were doing every one of them eels ourselves. We didn't sell 100 pounds live weight. Everybody wanted them, smoked eels, we couldn't get enough smoked eels. Mm-hmm. The morning that I get them smoked, the people knew what day to come because we take the orders. She'd take them on the phone. They'd tell us what they want, smoked eels or dressed eels, and we'd have them all packaged up for them. As soon as they come, they wanted five pounds. Well, could I get another couple extra pounds? Well, this would start just about supper time. She'd get the food on, and here they'd start coming for eels. She very seldom ever got a whole meal because waiting on these people, then the phone calls, that would come all week, our days off doing eels, and eels, and more eels. Her poor little hands were so sore sometimes, and her legs were standing outside, and we did this outside until it got so cold we couldn't take it. Then we'd go inside. And this went on 
till many years, until one day a car stopped and the guy said, I'm in the health department. I said, yes, I, I want to see how you do wheels. Nobody ever bothered me before. Mm -hmm. So he come, he looked it all over, didn't see him again. Next year he comes back with this big list of things that I have to do. Would have cost me about $100,000 in order to get set up to do wheels because of all the regulations that they put on. He come back about three times. Finally, I got mad and I chased him. I says, look, I'm not doing wheels no more. Get the hell out leave me alone. That was a, maybe 1980. I was in the state police yet. So here we are sitting with now about two ton of eels. What are we going to do with them, Kobe? We got all these live eels and I can't process them. Right? And a tank truck goes by. I said, boy, be nice. This guy come back and bought my eels. You know? He pulled in my driveway and he says to me, he says, you Floyd Campbell? I says, yes. Well, he says, I'm a buyer of live eels. I said, my God, whatever brought this on? And he was a state trooper also from around Lake Ontario. And he bought the eels up there from the Indians. And they caught them out of the lakes. So he says, I hear you have eels. That started my eel business. He bought them for years. Then a man from Philadelphia came up and bought the eels. So then I had a guy that lived down the road, Kevin Frieda, stopped. He says, you know, I know a Korean in Port Jervis, and her name is Kim, Kim Hazen, and she buys eels. She started buying them. Then I had another Korean come wow. in Swan Lake. He's got a restaurant, and he can keep up to 10,000 pounds of eels alive at one time. So that's where all the eels go. We no longer process any eels. I have people begging me want smoked eels, but can't do them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go over to Honesdale, to the restaurant, they want about $20 a pound for smoked eels. We were selling the last, I think, for what? $5 a pound, Kobe, was it? $6 a pound? There's a guy in Hancock, has it? Yes. That does it. Mm -hmm. And I, we sold him some live eels. He gets big money for them, too. For smoked eels. I have the knowledge, I have the eels, but they won't let us do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go through all this expense to what, what they want. They don't understand how it's done. All they care is about following my rules and regulations that are set down. See, my grandfather owned a stone quarry down here. Mm -hmm. And he gave an acre to an old hermit lived here, Tommy Dexter. And this is what started me with my eelware, is Tommy Dexter. And now we're talking back in the 40s. My mother died when I was three years old. She died in 1939. And there was two children. And my sister went with my grandparents on my mother's side. And I went with my grandparents on my father's side. And my father had gone off to World War II. But when I was a little kid, my grandparents take me in. We lived up here. We moved up here from the big boarding house down here. And uh, they sold that in 1944. We lived down where uh, Scott Rupke lives there now. There was a big house there. We lived there for two years. Then my grandfather built this in 1970. And we moved up here. And I was there until such time as I went in the military 
1955. Mm -hmm. So all my time from the moving up here from 1940, we moved in January 1st, 1946. I spent right down here on the river. And this hermit lived down here and he had an eel weir. And I just loved to go down there. These old timers would come there at nights when eels were running. They would bring their beer and they'd tell their stories. And it was wonderful. It was mm -hmm. the greatest thing to me in my life to go down to sit to hear these men. Here I was, a little boy, mm -hmm. 10, 11, 12 years old, hear them telling all these stories about not just eeling, about hunting, about life in general, about the military, about everything that happened through here, you know, years back. And it was wonderful. And I got a lot of knowledge from these old people that lived along the river because I spent all my time in the summertime in that river. The time that I was big enough to go down there, all summer I was fished every day and every day and every day. And there was a lot of fish in the river. Mm -hmm. But you could catch bass all day. And eels, oh my gosh. Every, the river was live with everything. And, of course, things have changed. Uh, we're getting not the winters that we used to get. We're getting more rain, more storms. If I got flooded once in my eel season, it was a lot. Now it's nothing like get flooded every 10 days. My son tried one. He had one down below my house here. He started one in, which was an old one years ago. We can get through it because I own this land and we can get down through here. Mm -hmm. But we got to go over the railroad where the other eel where I could drive right to the edge of the water. Mm -hmm. Got a letter here seven, eight, ten years ago to go down to Port Jervis to meet with the federal government. They're having a meeting on the Delaware eel fisheries. And there's an eel shortage worldwide. So we wanted to go down, and they had this meeting, and he gets up and he tells all the stuff that the federal government has, they're going through everything, and then he starts asking questions. How do you think we can better preserve the eels in the Delaware River? This man had no recollection to what he was talking about. He knew nothing at all about eels. All he knew was what he had read in the paper that other people had written down, he thought that we should have something that we should catch the little eels and not the big eels so they could spawn, so they can come back up, so they can catch the LYs, send them to Europe, and raise them on eel farms. This was his recollection of catching eels to stop us from catching the big ones. Let them go back and spawn, but let them catch the babies. Well, let me tell you something. If you kill mother and father... You're not going to have any babies. If you take all the little baby eels, you're not going to have nothing grow to maturity, and you're not going to have mothers and fathers. Nobody knows how many eggs an eel can lay. Nobody knows. Nobody has ever seen an eel egg. Never. Now, all the eels in the world go to Sarogasso Sea, which is the Bermuda Triangle, mm -hmm. which is tremendously deep. They go there and they spawn. They go to the depths, and after they spawn, the babies are transparent, and they float to the surface, and they go on the Gulf Stream northward. They all break off the Gulf Stream where they can feel fresh water coming in, and they keep going all the way up the coast. 
the most eels in any river is the St. John's River in Florida. It's a tremendous big river, and they can't catch them in it. It's too big. It's like the Hudson. But they break off, and they come all the way up. They go into Delaware Bay, and they go up all the little feeder streams. They would be there, these people, with their seine nets, and catch them by the thousands, mm -hmm. the Elwise, little eels, three to four inches long. And when they come from the salt water to the fresh water, they're transparent in the salt water. When they come to the fresh water, they turn color, and you can see them. They're very, very tiny, and they go all up these streams until they can go no further. They'll stay such time as they want to spawn. They'll head back to the ocean. Now, the eels that come up are 90 to 95% females. The males never leave the brackish water. They stay in the bays. They never come up. So the eels that you catch in here are 90 to 95% female eels. At my eel weir, I was catching one out of a ten eels. There's no way you can catch every eel come down unless you put a net in the river and shut off the whole river and you would catch everything. You'd catch everything in the river. And it's set up such way as you can't. It's built out of stone walls and water runs through them and the eels can go through them. Your idea is to channel the water down in a V to the bottom to eight foot wide and there you build your eel weir. But so many go through the walls, you can go down below the eel weir and see eels all over the river. So you're not catching them all. I've been told by divers that have been in the eddy in Nairsburg that on a rainy night with thunder or lightning, you would see them in a ball. Hundreds and hundreds of them. There's so many eels. They're still coming up. They have cleaned the river up. There is nothing from stopping them coming up here now. Their biggest thing that eats the eels are your striped bass. Never was such thing as a striped bass when I was a kid. But now in the last 20 years, because they have cleaned the river up, the river has got so much cleaner, the stripers are coming up here now. And I've been told by different people, fishermen, that they've been in the east branch just about dark, and they can see the stripers chasing the trout up there, feeding on them. So they went right up the east branch, right up the west branch. They're all the way in the Delaware. And I've had them, different ones, tell me about seeing big stripers below the bridge of Skinner's when they were diving in. And then doubtly the Eddie is full of them. The guy in there is deal weird down there. He caught a lot of stripers compared to what I catch. I catch maybe one a day where he was getting eight, ten a day. But the only trouble is when you catch them, they're not a hardy fish. They're like a trout. They won't last very long out of water, flopping around and they'll maybe ten minutes and they'll kill themselves. When you take a catfish, he can stay in there all day. Mm. A bass can come in there for a couple hours as long as there's water running on them. And bass, I very seldom ever get a bass unless he's been injured when he comes in mm. that's dead. Because they're very hardy and they can take it. Sunfish and rock bass, which is nothing in the river today. When I first had my eel weir in, you'd go down in the morning and you'd have 30, 40 rock bass and sunfish. Now anymore, if you get two or three, it's a lot. They're not there. That was there one time. Things have changed in the Delaware. When they sprayed for gypsy moss with DDT, that's what killed the fish and also 
the eagles that ate the fish, it made their shells soft. And it just about done the eagles in. So they stopped the DDT and the fish came back. And of course now the eagles have come back in a big way. Thank you very much to Mr. Floyd Campfield and his wife, Kobe. You're welcome. Floyd Campfield was known as the Eel King. He was an avid hunter, a fisherman, and a collector of Native American relics that he found in the plowed fields along the Delaware River. Linda Slocum spoke with Floyd Campfield in 2012 from his home in Tustin, just outside of Narrowsburg, New York, as part of a recorded oral history project in the Delaware River Valley, titled Unearth, sponsored by the Western Sullivan Public Library. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by a Radio Catskill volunteer. Special thanks goes to our guest, community member Linda Slocum, who shared her 2012 interview with Delaware River Eel King Floyd Campfield. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions providing tools for action and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Move Sullivan, Sullivan County's free bus system, helps people